I've been sober 24 years. You see how long it took us? I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't know when. And it was painful as fuck getting there. I'm going to be honest. But when I said let go and let God, one or two things going to happen. They're going to either get the fuck away from you and never come back again, or they're going to come on in. God's will will be done. These kind of relationships that get disturbed when we don't take the time to know what it is to say, to know how to Welcome to the most special episode of Tune the Fork thus far. I have with me my mother. I'm going to reference you as mommy, as I have my whole life until I'm gone. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um... We've taken a long road and what I wanted to do today is to learn about my mama. I want to learn as much as you are willing to share. Um, how do you feel about that? I feel okay. I mean, I, it's good. Okay. It's good. It's time. Okay. Okay. Um, a lot of conversations I've been having lately have been with women. And um, sometimes I forget that you're a woman. I associate you so much with just being a mom that I think over all of my life, um, I failed to acknowledge the fact that you were a lot of other things before you had that title. And so what I wanted to do in the pursuit of learning about all of these other women and seeing them as women is to try to pivot that lens onto the most important woman in my life. So I would like to know about you when what your desires were when you were a little girl how it was like growing up with granny and and you know just what your dreams were and how life just moved some of those in different directions and those sorts of things so um do, is there something you want to say before we kind of go into that you're in for a wild ride son <laughs> <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say okay um <laughs> Also, my family calls me Mikey. So when you reference and use the word Mikey, just so other people know, you're actually talking about me. That is my middle name. My middle name is Michael, and my whole family, including you, call me Mikey. No one else will know that, so I'm trying to set the stage. For that. You know why I called you Mikey? No. It was because it was a little boy on a commercial named Mikey, and he was advertising for Life Cereal. And you ate everything that wasn't nailed down as a baby. And so um, when Mikey's, I think, slogan was, give it to Mikey, he'll eat anything. I remember that. That's how you became Mikey. Okay, because I, I ate a lot. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. From um, the time you came out of the womb. What are some of your earliest memories of yourself as a little girl? My earliest memories are of being on an island. My dad was in the Air Force, and I think we moved to Okinawa, which is one of the Ryukyu Islands in the South Pacific, or I believe it's the South, South uh, China Sea. And, uh, and so I started school there. That's when impressions started to happen and, uh, and things. And, and I think one of the things I remember most was that we took a commercial airliner and we transferred over a, a commercial airliner to Hawaii, the Honolulu Airport. And mm. then from there, we got on a military plane. And, 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 and I was so afraid. At the time, my mom was pregnant. Uh, I had two other little brothers and me. And just the whole thing and everything was happening like at one and two and three in the morning. And I remember I woke up and we were on a Wake Island, which I think was a Air Force base because we were on our way to Okinawa, Japan, which was one of the Ryukyu Islands where daddy was stationed. And so getting through that little travel, it was uh, for me, I remember it as being very uh, scary. Um, and then once we got there and I saw my dad, everything was like, okay, because I was his princess. Because you, you were, he was there already stationed, yes. and you and Granny and Butch. Butch and, and Kevin, and okay. she was pregnant with Keith at Keith. the time. Uh -huh. Okay. So Keith you, was born there. So you were the only girl for a while. Oh, God, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Every time Mom had a baby, I said, please bring me a little sister, and she'd bring home another boy, and I didn't even want to play with him. <laughs> Because you wanted a sister. I wanted a sister. What was it like being the oldest and the only girl for that for that time period? Well, my brothers picked on me. Okay. They would go in my room. I would lock it before I went to school, and they'd cut all the hair off of my Barbies, and then I would <laughs> retaliate and, and snatch all the heads off their G.I. Joes, and then it would just be, a you know, a battle. Um I had a nanny. A lot of people don't know that. When you're in the military and you were the level that daddy was, um, you had people that were assigned to you. So I also had a, a, a nanny. Uh, I spoke almost fluent Japanese when I was only like four, maybe five years old. Wow, really? And I remember that they had a fifth birthday party for me. And we only had a designated 30 guests. I wish mom was here because she tells this story so well. And it was even in the base newspaper. Remember, I was a princess. <laughs> and everywhere I went, I invited somebody to this party. Well, it turned out to be over 200 people and was only supposed to be 30. And mom and Yukiko, who was my neighbor, I mean my uh, nanny, they were uh, running out trying to get extra food and stuff. And my mother said, I told you 30 people. I said, this is 30 people. <laughs> <laughs> and it was over, it was close, it was a lot of people. Yes, and my first pair of high heels, oh my God, they were little plastic high heels with elastic straps, and, and they hurt my feet so bad, but I, I, I loved my high heels. I got several pair for my birthday that year. That was probably the most wonderful time I think I can remember, next to having my first baby. Yeah, that was a very exciting, exciting time. You sound like a um, 
as a person going around inviting all these people to your party, you sounded like you were a people person always. type. Okay. Yeah, always. And you always. and you've always been that way. Yeah, I kind of am. Okay. I'm a people person now until I get home, and then I don't want to be bothered. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I love that being on the base, and and then I can remember when we came back, uh, because of the time difference. I forget the the uh, technical term for it, but we would be up eating dinner at one and two o'clock in the morning, and everybody else would be asleep. So it took us a couple of uh, jet lag. It's something called something else. Oh, okay. When your body's on an entire different time system. Gotcha. Yeah, and so we would be up eating dinner and things at 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, and the whole household would be asleep. It took us a couple, mm. of, yeah, a couple of weeks to get back on track. But those are the things I most remember about uh, the age, I'd say the very first memories, the very first memories uh, of my life. And, uh, you know, ironically, the older you get, the further back you can remember. Really? That's why old people talk about the past all the time. Because we remember those, and it's like now I can remember things when I was three years old that I could not have remembered 20 years ago. But I can't tell you what I had for lunch yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of ironic. So how did, how did Granny meet your dad? Do you know? You know, um, vaguely, vaguely. I think she met him like at a, a dance type thing or something, and uh, and that was it. But Daddy was not her true love. Her true love was uh, her second set of kids' uh, father. Yeah, when I'd asked her how she ended up marrying Daddy, she said, because I just wanted to make his sister's maid. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, how long were they married? Quite a while. Now, I can say that they officially separated when I was about 10 years old. And, and I'll just be perfectly candid, a lot, a lot of physical abuse. I mean, even when I speak back to those most fondest memories, my mother was severely abused by my dad, and that was kind of sad. Um, because women had no protection back in the 60s and the late 50s. And I can remember her going to his uh, base commander telling her what he was going through. And he said, well, a good wife needs a whipping every now and then. And if you just do like he tells you to do, you'll be fine. But they didn't realize he had PTSD. It was called shell shock back then. Mm -hmm. And so when we came back to the States, uh, things started, you know, to become more and more uh, evident as far as the damage that the war had done to my dad. And so... You know, there were more, Mother shared more about the bad times with Dad than she did about the good times, and rightly so. You know, rightly so. A lot of dysfunction. And I think that's got a lot to do with why I, I am and where I am today and why I'm committed to certain causes and things, too, because I've I actually experienced it firsthand. So, um, yeah. But I really don't know how they met, you know, um, other than that's what she used to tell me. How, um, did you think he was a good dad? Oh, my God. He absolutely adored me. But here's where the conflict comes in, son. I could hear dad as a five-year-old and they're beating mom up. We all did, me, Butch, and Kevin. They were just like three and four, and I was five or going on six. 
And every time Dad would jump on Mom, he would take me to get ice cream. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but that's going to give you a really warped perception of any type of relationship. Because even though I, and she'd come out with black eyes and all kinds of things and say she fell in the shower when the auxiliary ladies would come over to play cards and things, she fell in the shower. There was always some type of excuse, but we knew. But Daddy would always take me to get ice cream. And so in, on one hand, I hated the fact that he was in there beating my mother up. But can you imagine as a five-year-old child hoping he'll hurry up and finish so he can take you to get ice cream? That was a real, real fucked up thing. I mean, you know. Um, and so, you know, as, as, as we went on, the boys didn't know, but I was always daddy's favorite. Always his favorite. He told me uh, that I was a princess and don't ever let anybody tell me anything different. He just failed to tell all the men I was going to get in relationships that I was a princess. That would have been nice, Daddy. Uh, but all jokes aside, you know I'm going to put some comedy in here because that's who I am. I love it. Um, when they separated, how did your relationship to him change? Oh, wow. Okay, how can I... I was still close to my dad, but my mother had a lot of struggles when she left dad. One of the reasons why was because she didn't have a high school education, and it was not through any fault of hers. They were coming up, you get a husband, you be a good, we're talking about the 50s and 60s. A woman's work was in the house, okay? And they, uh, they didn't need a job, or they didn't need to go out of the house. So a lot of that was uh, based upon the times and things we were in. Now, and um, I'm sorry. What was the question? I drifted out. How'd, how'd your relationship to, to your Daddy. dad change? And uh, we were still close, but mother would not let him come and see us if he didn't have any money. And and back then, the police were serious about child support. They would literally come out to the house. And um, Daddy kidnapped me one time. Oh my God! We had the most fun in our entire life. But if they had had Amber Alert out back then, uh, and I was, I think they had just broken up because I was like in the fifth grade, and he kidnapped me, and we stayed on the lam for like two whole months, and uh, it was kind of fun, but we ended up like uh, Tatum O'Neill and our daddy, Ryan O'Neill, and the paper chase. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because we end up in little small towns, and I've always sung, and I always wanted to sing, even as a little kid. So I would go sing, and people would give us money. And then our daddy would try to wash our clothes or whatever and get us a hamburger. But And I left out a vital piece, too. My daddy was an alcoholic, okay, and get him a drink. And so, uh, and then one day I looked at my dress, and I said, Daddy, remember, I'm a princess. I said, Daddy, I have to go home. My dress is awful. <laughs> and so uh, he dropped me off at his uh, sister's house. And then it was a while before I saw Daddy, and then Mom came and got me and the police, and it was like, and, and I just, you know, I always loved him and I always wanted to be with him, but he had no money. And so one of the things, I, I think women, one of the worst things you can do is to keep a man away from his children because you don't feel he has anything financial. I love her to death, but we all make mistakes. And I think it was vital that daddy should have been in my brother's lives. He should have been in my life. 
uh, whether he had a drinking problem or, or whatever, but he was not allowed. And only when I grew up and became a, a teenager, I found my daddy, and I started spending time with him. Yes, I did. It sounds like you, um, even though he, you know, there were all of this, there was all this trauma and all this violence that you still recognized that he was sick from, you know, the PTSD and... Did you, did you feel like that at the time? Or? Absolutely not. I was a little kid. I didn't feel that way at the time. A lot of these things and these uh, realizations came to me as an adult. And, uh, and, and believe it or not, uh, you know, I'm in recovery myself now. And recovery for me has probably been the most magnificent thing that could ever happen because... I've had to take a look back at these things and take trauma assessments and, and, and find out what happened to me instead of what's wrong with me, what happened to me. And as you start to battle those demons of drugs and alcohol and things of that nature, and then you go look back and, and, and you start to take a, a, a trip down memory lane as far back, you can see what happened to you but more so, you start to think more about what happened to others that made them the way they were. And so the love has always been there. You know, it's always been there. But we all are products of some form of trauma. It's what we do with it. How does it manifest itself in our lives, you know? And it can either go left or it can go right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But whichever direction it goes, you have the power to turn it around. So, you know, I just... I loved my daddy, but as I got older, I went out and I sought him out. Yes, I did. And so, um, Granny leaves your dad. There are four kids in the picture or five at that time? Um, me, Butch, Kevin, Keith, Dugan, and Janelle. So it was six. So she had six kids with your dad? No, she had five with my dad and four with her high school sweetheart. Okay, she so has when two she two sets of children. So when she left, when she left your dad, there were five kids in the picture. Yes, and she was pregnant with um, my first sister, my angel. And and Granny got pregnant with the sixth while she was with your dad. They weren't together. They had been estranged for okay. a long time. Okay. Yeah. So, but they were not divorced. Okay, I got you. Yeah. So five kids with your dad. How old are you roughly at this time? About 11, 10 or 11. Okay. Uh -huh. um, obviously, a new dude started coming into the picture. That was your her high school the last, sweetheart. The last four dads. Yes. And so her, the high school sweetheart for her was the fourth, was the, was the father of the last four kids. Exactly. Okay. What was life like for you at that time with your dad being, you know, out of the picture and like this new dude coming in and and all of that? I didn't really think too much of it. Okay. I really didn't. However, um, he started trying to molest me when I was eight years old. We lived in a house across the street uh, from the garage that he worked where he and mom rekindled their relationship. And um, yeah, 
And mother was a nurse. And so she worked nights, and my grandmother was also a nurse, and, and he would come in and, you know, and that went on for quite, until I was about 13, because kids don't really know what's going on, but then I told her what had been happening, and, um, oh my God, I love her for this, and she took him upstairs in their room, and the next, they stayed up for, for about three, four hours, and the next thing I know, he was coming out with everything he owned in trash bags, everything. And she was pregnant with his ninth child at the time. Yeah. So it wasn't no way. You probably did something or it's your fault or anything. It was his. And he had to get up and get out of there. And that was it. After she had that other child by him, she pretty much left him alone. You could see the distance. You know, there was a lot of distance. But we, her children were her everything. You know, um, my mother was a different breed. She um, <laughs> she made sure we had everything we needed, every as 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 much as she could. You know, uh, there was a lot of poverty, but there was so much love that it just overruled the poverty. You know, it really truly did. And when she made a decision to leave him alone, and she was pregnant, she uh, I mean, there was a whole lot of poverty then. And so by then. I had pretty much graduated high school and everything like that, so I helped the family out a whole lot uh, because to some degree I felt responsible for her financial hardship because had I not said anything, then he would have still been in the picture and providing her financially, you know, on a regular basis. And so I grew up and found that wasn't my fault either. You know, that just was not my fault. That was the consequences of sick-ass behavior. And, um, you know, we, we made it through. But if at any time I ever felt my mother loved me, didn't love me, I knew she loved me then. I knew she loved me then, putting, taking her kid, putting that man out over her daughter. Because I had many girlfriends who uh, their mothers put them out when, uh, when they told them their stepdaddies was, was trying to molest them. So Were you hesitant about telling Granny for that reason? Not, I think... Not so many. I didn't consider it because when I told her, I wasn't considering it. I think what it was was I didn't know how she was going. Even though I knew she, I didn't know how she was going to react. But when he said something that was a lie, it it flipped a switch on me. And then at that point is when I told her what happened, and she didn't even question it. Asked me, she said, "Come here." She said, "Come here," and took him upstairs. Now, you have siblings who are spawns of him. Mm -hmm. Have you had conversations with them? A couple, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've had conversations with them. How did that go? But, okay. You know, my baby brother, he just found out, my sister, and I just told him. Um, and a matter of fact, I didn't even, for some reason, didn't want him to know. And just here recently, I told him. And he said, Pat, I'm sorry that happened to you. And, you know, there's, there, there's no need for a whole lot of discussion because after mom died, let me tell you something. Most of us are families of secrets. All of us are. And I thought my mom told me everything. But after I talked to my mom, I found out there had been some similar behavior that had transpired between some siblings in my family. And uh, that just about floored me. Yeah, 
And so, um, and I'm not saying names or anything because I love my family. And, uh, but we've had the conversations about that. It was like after I shared what he did, then they shared about some, I went, wow. And, and, and that's when I realized we are families of secrets. Certain generations of families are just, and that's the way it is. And unless somebody is willing to open up and speak candidly and honestly, many of you guys in your age group will never know what's, what's going on in your, has ever gone on in your families. I'm trying to process some of the stuff that you're saying. So some of it is kind of broad, so I got to repeat it back in a way just to make sure that I'm hearing what you're saying. There are siblings of yours that you are aware of that have done things to other siblings of yours. A sibling that did the, he's deceased now. That's why I'm talking about it. But at their, at my discretion to protect Understood. them. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. How did the... Um, Seems like a really hard thing to be processing at a young age like that. And to have that man maybe still come by the house every now and then to see the other kids and all of that. And you're being the oldest and, and knowing that that stuff happened. Mm -hmm. How are you handling that? You want the truth? When I became an alcoholic, okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. And, and this was early in my disease. I would be out at a nightclub or something, and I would see him, and I would call him a, a pedophile. And then sometimes, and I'd say, he better buy me drinks all night. I'm going to tell everybody in here he's a child molester. And, and I'm serious. And whenever I see him out in public, I'd say, hey, molester, what's up? And, I mean, I confronted him every time I saw him, believe it or not, it helped me. I remember one night he came in the joint, and uh, we were to join up on Prospect, and he uh, walked in, and I was on the DJ booth. I said, tell him to send me uh, drinks, or I'm getting ready to tell everybody in the club he's a molester. And then he tried to uh, play it off, and I did. Every time I would see him, I would call him a Lester out in public. Yes, I did. So that was... That but was I only had that courage because I was drunk, see? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did. And eventually, it just went away. It went away. So that was as an, that was as an adult. What about when as you a child, were a child? I just went into another room. I just went into another room. What did you used to want to be when you were a little girl? Oh, my God. At which time? First, I wanted to be uh, an archaeologist. That's when all the mummy movies was big. I said, God, I can get out there and find a mummy. So first, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Then I wanted to be Diana Roth. <laughs> it's like she has been my shero 
since I was this high. I have always loved Diana Ross, but I recently found out some information. I need to stay off YouTube. Mm -hmm. I don't like her as much as I used to because I found out something about her on um, on YouTube with Michael Jackson. But anyway, it's another story for another day. But I always wanted to sing. I always wanted to sing, even as a little child. I just, I've always wanted to sing. And I grew up and started to pursue that career. Yes, I did. I started in the church uh, as a, a little bitty kid. And then I went through high school. I was in the choir. And I played violin. And I just always loved music. I, I've always considered myself a musician, even though I just sing around the house every now and then. But, yeah. You know, I actually, well, you're aware that I actually had an opportunity to be a disco queen back in the 70s. You know, it was like, and it was like when I get in front of an audience, I came alive. I just, but I was clumsy. You know, I remember one night I was on the road with a band in a big Winnebago. It was called the Everyday People Life. And um, the big track at the time was uh, Curtis Mayfield's Superfly. And they had this bit in the, in the song where the violin sounded like a siren and Freddie's dead. And I had an acoustical violin and I would play that part. And then I would also sing with the lead singer. And I was, oh my God, I would go to what they say, and our special guest tonight is Miss Pat Harris. That was my maiden name. And I'd come out in the evening gown with my violin and my high heel would get, would get uh, tangled up in the, uh, the chords. And then I'd try to get it out and then I'd raise my foot up and then the speakers would come falling down and then they say things like, well, that was an entrance. But I mean, this happened to me on more, I was, I was very clumsy. You know, even though um, I had a modeling career and things, I wasn't clumsy then, but I was just clumsy. When did you, so you were very pretty. You were a model back in the day. Yeah. Um, and you were very fair-skinned in an era where how black and down you were was directly related to how dark you were. That's that's the generation I ran up in. I was raised in, yes. So what was that like at that time when you were doing that and playing the violin and dancing and, I'm sorry, singing and all of that kind of stuff? So we're talking about colorism now. I, I mean, it, I mean, it's... I have seen colorism go in opposite directions since I've been alive. And let's keep in mind, I have lived through Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Movement, okay? Now we're dealing with the Black Lives Movement and uh, the Me Too Movement. We got a whole bunch of movements. But back during Jim Crow, which is just one step up from slavery, down south, and even here, if women were going to date someone, they were always discouraged to and told things such as, don't bring, don't bring that nigga home if he's darker than a brown paper bag, okay? And so it was fashionable to be fair-complected. I mean, for some reason, the opposite race doesn't seem to be as threatened 
you know, uh, by people that are closer to their skin tones. But they, you know, they've learned over the years. But that colorism, I mean, it has always been an issue. I understand that um, the Willie Lynch letters are now considered fictional, okay? But but they are so appropriate and they mm. were so accurate. You know, you keep pitting us against each other, like the light slaves against the black slaves, and, and division is where we conquer, you know? And so, um, yeah, I've been a product of that. I've gotten opportunities because I made, I met quotas. First, this was the unspoken quota, I was fair complected. Second, I was African American, and third, I was female. So I was given jobs that I was not qualified for in the early 70s because they were given uh, quotas that they had to fill. Now we're talking about um, civil rights, you know, and the different laws and things that were passed. Uh, to help blacks, but they still, in their own way, discriminate. Discriminate, excuse me. They still discriminated because I can remember sitting in Amoco Hall and practically everybody in there that was black was fair complexed. I worked for Southwestern Bell as the operator. Everybody that worked in there was fair complexed, you know. And and I think we've seen a paradigm shift in that uh, recently. And when I say recently, I mean as recent as a couple of years, you can still go on to uh, uh, any social media platform where people are twerking and things and see that the fair complected and the white girls get way more attention than the dark skinned sisters do. You know, so, I mean, I, just like any other woman, survival of the fittest, you're going to utilize whatever gifts or whatever qualities you feel you have that's going to help you be successful and help you live a, 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 life, a lifestyle but uh, let's just put it this way. Beige Negroes ain't in no more. <laughs> they really aren't. I miss. I'm clear. Shoot, they really aren't. And so uh, we just kind of, you know, go back into our little hole because everything comes back, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, everything. Shoes, fashion, looks, all that. It eventually comes back. But, yeah, that's pretty much how I've handled it. Were you a good student? Not at all. I was about having fun. It's a shame. It's almost checkout time. Now I'm trying to learn as much as I can. For what? <laughs> I mean, no, I wasn't. I was the fun person. I was the locker that had the liquor in it right before spring break. Um, I was the one that, you know, one of the ones that all the guys was after. And I was just having too much fun. You know, and then when I had to go to junior college and I was absolutely bored to tears, I was always smart, but I didn't want people to know it. I didn't want people to know it. I Why thought, not? I don't know. It wasn't fashionable to be smart. Now, I wish I had a doctorate. Hmm. If there was anything I could change about my life, I would have stayed in school. Yes, I would. I would have stayed in school. But when I came up, it wasn't, we weren't even encouraged to go to college. We were told to grow up, marry a man that works for either General Motors, the post office, or one of the, you know, one Ford of the big, or something. Uh, for, yeah, and or the city with them good benefits, and you'll be fine. I ran like Florence Joyner. My mom said, what you running for? That ain't going to get you no husband. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I loved sports. I loved music. 
But the, the, the generation that I come from, unless you are very, very, very extremely driven and determined, you're, if it's something that women don't specialize in, you were not pursuing that. Your ultimate goal was to get out of high school, marry a man with a government job, or the big three automakers, have babies, and live happily ever after. Bam. Well, we know that's all changed now. And that ain't, that's not necessarily the path you took. No, it kind of wasn't. I've always been a maverick. I've always been a, a free spirit. I've always been a person who did what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. And therefore, when your dad and I got married, it did not work. <laughs> That's a good segue. Yeah, it did not work. <sighs> when did my dad first get on your radar? Oh, I thought you knew. Your dad was never on, I was never on your dad's radar. I had a copy of Ebony Magazine at work. I was working up the street at Amoco Oil. And the girls was around the water club talking about, oh, he is fine. Look at this. He was one of the most eligible bachelors in the country at, a, at the time. He was working for Xerox Corporation, was the first. I read his whole bio. And after I finished, I said, mm, his office was right up the street. And I looked down there and I made one of the worst decisions I ever made. I said, I'm going to get him. <laughs> okay, the good thing that came out of it was Thank you. you. I'm like, I'm and sitting I over here. I'm, I'm a product of her worst decision and I'm the best thing that's happened in her life. So why can't that be the best decision? No, I'm just well, kidding. for real, I'm all jokes aside. So I go down. I was very aggressive when I was younger and I was gorgeous. So I got away with a lot of stuff. And I sat in that office and waited on him to come out. I said, here, there he is. I sat out there for two weeks. I said, there he is. Uh-uh-uh. So just as he comes walking out to go get in his car, I get out of my little red sports car, and I walked up to him, and I dropped my purse on the ground. And just as I dropped my purse, I pulled the sock down. As I went to pick up my purse, I pulled the sock down. He said, what the heck? And then he looked at me and he said, oh, my God. I got my car. I took off. Then he ran me down. <laughs> we were married and, like, make, I think I was pregnant. It was a fast move. I, we had been knowing each other nine months. I was pregnant with you. And you were due to be born in September, which you were, of course. And... Um, and then we stayed together for about a year, and I left him three times in the first year because he tried to control me and all those other things. And then what happened that really was the straw on the camel's back was that he hit me. Now, bear in mind, I came from an abusive, coming up an abusive relationship with my mom and dad, and so as a direct result of that, I kind of don't take lightly to men hitting me. And I have a tendency to overact. You know, if I even think, if we're arguing and you do like this to scratch your head, well, I've usually already, you know, overreacted in some physical way or another. And so, uh, yeah, I've often said I'm not taking no ass whippings by no men. My mother took enough, and I meant that. You know, I'm not one that's going to end up in a battered women's shelter. You know, I've often said that you may end up in a morgue, but I'm not going to end up in a battered women's shelter. I take no ass whippings. 
And if anyone thinks they're going to do that, I would highly recommend they think, you know, think a little bit harder. So I've so that was, that. The, that was the that, that was, was the that was the strong. Okay. He, yeah, he hit. He jumped on me, and uh, that was it. I, was I, he abusive to other people? Absolutely. Every woman he he had, he beat him up. Absolutely. Was that just a thing back then? No, I don't think it was a thing. I think it was a thing with alpha males who really were truly possibly betas, but they wanted to flex. And so their best way of flexing was by preying on the weaker sex. I never knew of your father ever getting into a fight with anybody, but he'd fight a woman with a quickness. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? So I look back on that too. You know, I look back on a lot of things people did or, or do is because of things that they went through. You know, I can be more compassionate and empathetic with people today that have a lot of, of major faults than I could have been before. Yeah. What was it about my dad that you, it, it was just a physical thing? No. I think I, well, I thought I was in love, but I wasn't. I think I was infatuated. But I'll be perfectly honest. What it was with your dad was that everybody wanted him. Everybody wanted him. And so because he wanted him, I guess in my own warped way, I wanted to prove I could get him. And I did. You know, uh, did it, went about it the wrong way, you know, but that was, I think that's what the attraction was for me, that all the women were oohing and on over him. And I was young. I mean, he and I even had conversation. He said he was in his 30s, I was in my 20s. We were just young and stupid. You know, and he was a womanizer. Your dad was real good looking. Like, I'm telling you something you don't know. You look just like him. And I mean, women just, he was a woman. I've always been attracted to womanizers, always for some reason. I don't know why. And, uh, yeah, he was a womanizer. I left him, and one of the times I left him, I came back to Kansas City. And uh, we managed apartment buildings in L.A., and he had rented the entire apartment complex to drag queens. I'm going, Jim, what's up? You know, and those drag queens, and I became the best of friends. And they just loved you. You know, they babysit you. And I didn't like them dressing you up. I said, don't be putting that shit on my baby. You know, <laughs> I come there, they got a little hat in the first stole. I said, don't do that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, some of them became best friends uh, with me, but... I don't know why that sounds so familiar uh-huh. now that you said it. Uh, wait till you get my age. You're going to remember a lot of that stuff. I said, well, my baby got on a fur hat and a mink stuff. Girl, I made this for him. Well, take it off of him. But they loved you. They said, that's my baby. They'd fight over who was whose apartment you was going to. But Jim was a regular people. He loved people, and people loved him, but especially women. They loved him. You know, he was just, we would go through the grocery stores in L.A., and the Commodores had a song out called Zoom. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that was going on back there was when a sister would see a good-looking man, they pass him and go, Zoom. I got so sick of bitches Zooming my husband, (laughs) I didn't know what to do. And he'd just be grinning with them hazel eyes. and Oh, my gosh. But, yeah. I think one of our problems was we were too much alike. Hmm. He liked attention. I liked attention. When he married me, I was a beauty queen. I remember I, he found me, 
And, and he asked for my number. He said, why'd you pull my sock down? I said, we'll talk about it later. So I said, well, I'll be up here um, Sunday night, and maybe we can talk about it then. Well, that Sunday night, I had just been crowned Miss Black Missouri. And so he was sitting there saying he was hoping I would come in. I stepped out of a black limousine with my court, and, and he went, what the? Had my big bouquet and my crown on, and he was gone. What is this? And I told I said, I've been competing in pageants and stuff, and I happened to win this year. And so that was, yeah. So Miss Black Missouri, for folks who don't know, there was a period of time, every state got a Miss Missouri. Mm-hmm. Like, they had separate pageants for black people. Do they still have separate pageants? They sure do. Okay. Wow. You won. Mm-hmm. Did your life change or did anything get? If I had won Miss Missouri and Miss America, it would have. But keep in mind that when you're a new a new uh, venue or something, and, and J. Morris Anderson was the one that was over the Miss Black uh, America pageant, um, he had a great idea. He's the one that started it and everything, but times changed. And then when Vanessa Williams won the Miss America, that opened, people can say what they want to say about her, but that opened doors for sisters to be acknowledged for their true beauty. But she was fair complected with green eyes. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And then here comes along Kendra Moore, Miss Universe, the most gorgeous, one of the most gorgeous black women you could ever. Now that's when we start talking. You know, when she won, won Miss USA, that's when... Uh, you didn't have to be fair-complected and green eyes to win anything. And now if you look at the runways all through Paris, and they're, they're going into the bushes getting these beautiful, tall African sisters. And that's what I mean by fair-complected. But no, my life didn't change. I had a woman that uh, uh, made me some homemade jewelry. Uh, I was promised a scholarship. I never got it. <laughs> I don't even know where it was coming from, how long it was for. Uh, we just didn't have the kind of sponsors that white pageants have. Mm-hmm. And we were not supported in the community. And and, uh, Ava, and to this day, I don't, I still don't think they've got the same support. When they show the pageant is on in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep, a couple of contestants got bullet holes in them and shit. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> hey. You know, so, and I actually watched the pageant. I watched it one year, and these sisters were talented and everything, but they we've just never gotten exposure. And so I'm, I'm really, really excited now that to just see so many uh, African-American sisters that have been infiltrated or included in the regular pageants and mm-hmm. are being acknowledged, are truly being acknowledged. Yes, I do. But nothing changed for my life. Uh, yep, I met Jim Shelby. And I got married. Uh, that was in my personal life, but I drank a lot. I smoked a lot of weed. Uh, that nothing was no different. When you um, when you found out you were pregnant with me, what was your reaction? Well, first of all, I wanted to get pregnant. That was probably every form of birth control out there. I I, I wanted to get pregnant. Why? I wanted a baby. It was time. And he was cute, and we was going to have a cute baby, and look at right there. 
My plan worked. Look that, was, that, that was literally thought process? I swear to God. <laughs> I said, if he get them eyes, that's going to be even better. Look at you. You got those eyes. Only one. What can I? The only one, too. Thank you for that. Yeah, so, I said, but if I have a baby by him, it's going to be cute. So I had a baby by him. <laughs> but then you, so the idea is different than the, the, the actual application of it. So... Have a baby, we're gonna have a cute baby. That's right, but you was ugly when you was born. Yeah, I was very unattractive. Yeah, when I was a baby. Yeah. What changed? What changed in you? Did anything change? Oh, absolutely. Did From you? My, yes, yes, something did change because I the, the minute I held you in my arms, I knew that you and I were gonna do life. Your father, mm, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I knew me and you were going to do life. Keep in mind, I came from a, a, a long line of breeding women. Uh, their children were always their number one priority. My grandmother had 14. My auntie had 13. My mama would have had 13. She lost two sets of twins. And so, uh, but there was always, there was something missing, you know. Um, from those situations or... It was something missing. My life changed when I had you, but when I, I looked at you and, and I said I knew I, that was a, that was a big thing. But at the same time, there was a maternal something missing from me, and I can't explain it. I had a hard time bonding, and I believe that it was a, a, a particularly connected to all the bonding I did with my younger siblings. When mom brought a baby home, I was the one doing, you know, I'd help and things and and uh, and just love them and hold them and everything. But when I had my own child and I saw, I think I wasn't as fully aware of what having a child meant. When you cry, you got to feed them when they get, and, 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 and it was like a mother should be excited to go get their kid and feed him. And then Jim and I, your dad was always arguing on whose turn it was. Well, it was never his turn. <laughs> never. Yeah. Um, and, and, and things, but that's okay. You know, it was, it's a woman's job. But that was the only thing I realized for the first time in my life, here is a little person that's going to be responsible for me. And I felt overwhelmed with responsibility. Yes, I did. How did you respond to that feeling? I called my mama. <laughs> okay. My mother rescued me when it came to kids. I mean, I didn't know why you were crying all the time. And every time you would cry, I would cry. And she'd say, Pat, baby, sense when you're upset. And uh, you can't do that. And yes, I was a very nervous, high-strung mother. And mother just came over and just swooped right in and realized what was going on, and then you and I were like best friends from then on. But mom knew exactly what to do for a baby. And she's the one that helped me tremendously when I felt overwhelmed. All I'd have to do is pick up the phone and start crying. She said, I'm on my way. So, I think I'm gonna, I'm about to start asking some questions that They pertain to me, but they're really about you. So my um, my hope is that you can answer them like in a 
the most honest way that you can, regardless of my feelings. It's not necessarily to resolve something in me as much as it is to just understand, like, kind of like your thinking and what you were going through at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember really happy times when we were, like, during the younger years. Like the time at Granny's house. All the cousins coming over when they would come over. You would go, we would go to um, the movies on, like, Tuesdays or something when they had, like, the the dollar show or mm-hmm. something. And we would go see movies and things. Those were very... I felt really connected to you early. And then I feel like something changed. And I don't know when that changed or why it changed. I just feel like there was a gap. Is anything I'm saying making sense? Absolutely. Help me understand what was, like, your side of it at that time. I know exactly what changed, uh, Mikey. Alcoholism came into play. And you got to realize that I didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden I'm addicted to alcohol. It's a, you don't, it's a process. And during the early years, I was preparing to become an alcoholic later on. And so with those dynamics, it's going to come the distancing of people that love you. It's going to come, uh, a part of that is going to be when they want to come towards you and show affection. You don't want them to smell the liquor and the, and the smoke on you. And so you push them away. But little children construe that as they don't love me. They don't care about me, but that's not it. I don't want you up on me. And, oh, sorry. And then secondly... Kids blow you high, <laughs> okay? I mean, they do. Yes. And so that's what With they, all their needs. Absolutely. <laughs> like eating and shit. Yeah. I mean, why you got to do that? Getting a diaper change. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so that's where the, yeah, I was in preparation mentally to become an alcoholic. And that's where I eventually ended up. But it had never anything to do with you. It was through the process of becoming from a early alcoholic to a chronic alcoholic. And that's where the, because you got to keep in mind, that started in my 30s. That started in my late 20s. That's when you was a, a small guy, see? But if you look at the process and the progression, you'll see it right there. Yeah, that's when it started. And then as I got, as you got older, I couldn't look at you and handsome number two, that's my Casey, without a a, a certain level of guilt. You see, there was a certain level of guilt. I can remember a time when I would be interacting specifically with you and I could not, without crying, just turning into a big mess. And it was always your fault. It was always... This, it was always, never took responsibility for that myself. Never. 
But look how they did me and got me out of town and dogged me up. And then I'd pick up the phone. And many times I wasn't, I mean, doing these types of things, I was in complete sobriety. But I'm still healing from the guilt of the type of mother I wish I could have been. Not the type of mother that I should have been. Because I wish I could have been that kind of mother. And so every time I looked at you guys, I was reminded of the long string of men I brought home, the filthy houses, the utilities being turned off, sometimes food insecurity. You know, I didn't want to be reminded of that. And just looking at us just but automatically reminded. That's where the wedge came in. It was never you. It was always me, always. You know, um, I'm, I'm one of these strange type of recovered alcoholics that I can acknowledge today I was afraid of success. You know, because if I do anything with my life, then people are going to come to expect it. They already expect it too much. So how about this? I'll just become a stomp down drunk and then they'll stop expecting shit of me. That, yeah, that's the, that's the way the mindset goes. You know. When did you, where do you think that comes from? The disease of alcoholism. You don't, you don't attribute it back to the, the molestation stuff or, or anything like that that triggered that or? I could, but you got to understand there's millions of women out here that have been molested and they are not alcoholics and drug addicts. Their children go to bed with food in their stomachs, their house is clean, their mother's up the next morning. I can't take, I can say these are some of the things that happened to me that, that contributed to my disease. But I can't say that that's all there because there are certain prototypes of people that become alcoholics and drug addicts. And we've learned through, yeah, now I'm a counselor. We've learned through studying that we were alcoholics and drug addicts before we even took a drink or used a hit. Yeah, we were truly alcoholics. What happened was we started to self-medicate the pain through partying. I tell people I went to a party in 1977. Nobody told me to go home till 99. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, through party. It starts out as partying. And then one day you wake up and you're not doing it because you want to or you're partying. You're doing it because you have to because your body's now developed a tolerance and you don't feel normal unless you have something in you. And so... Um, but where is know, that pain coming from? Man? That pain is coming from trauma and bad decisions. Bad decisions and trauma. It's not what happens to you, baby, that's so important. It's how do you deal with it. Mental health has never been anything that the African-American community focused on. We're the last ones to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist unless it's through a treatment program or something. If we had been receptive to getting therapists and things earlier in life, but before you can fix something, you got to first admit something's wrong. I never admitted anything was wrong. It was only after I decided I wanted to get well that I started getting down and peeling the layers off why I did what I did. You know, it was bad decisions and trauma. 
What do you call your choice in men? Oh my God, bad. My my picker's broken. <laughs> I mean, it has been. I did have. A, I'm sorry. I keep hitting your mic. I did have a um, a wonderful guy when I got sober, and he passed on from congestive heart failure. We were together uh, off and on for about ten years, and then he asked me to marry him, and then two months later he died. And so, um, I think because. The, most of my relationships occurred while I was in my addiction. I can't really give them a, a fair evaluation other than being able to tell you that they taught me what I don't want. When you start to think different and feel different and you find peace in your life, your whole perspective on what a relationship look like looks like begins to change. And not only does it begin to change, but you get in the mindset that I would rather be by myself than to be in something that's toxic. The, the, the images that I have in my mind about your choice in men seem to always be men who are married. Or, or, or unavailable. Absolutely. And I never, and at the time as being the kid, I never understood that at all. And, and I always wondered why you were choosing that. Do you think that was the addiction? Absolutely. But more so, it was... It was that I wanted the relationship, but I didn't want a relationship. I want somebody that goes home that I have no responsibility for. I can remember when I was in relationships, I'd go, baby, you better wake up. It's getting late, <laughs> you know, um, because I wanted the intimacy, but I did not want the responsibility. So it was easier for me to send a man home than it was to have him in my house trying to boss, boss me around and my children. And I had all the fun without none of the having to do his laundry, cook his meals, and any of that. You know, and so as a direct result of that, I had to start taking a look at, was I really choosing them? Or was I allowing them to choose me? Mm. You see what I'm saying? Because I was a perfect mistress. Perfect. And let's face it, men need mistresses. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but... After a while, I said, I don't want anybody else's man. I either want my man or no man. And, and, the, reason why I'm, and I'm, the reason why I'm challenging the idea of the addiction piece is because when you're talking about granny and all of these, these, these archetypes that, that have been modeled for you as it relates to relationships and, and men and all of that, it just it doesn't seem like it would be something you would want to do because all the models point to drama yeah. and unhealthy. So like, let me replace that with something else yeah. that at least it's a, it's unhealthy, but it's a different kind of unhealthy than just. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm saying they played a role, but it was not the whole thing. You know, it did play a role. My mother had four kids by a married man. Okay, uh, 
He was a mechanic. <laughs> My second baby was by a married man. He was a mechanic. What's the correlation here? I've had to get, I've been in therapy so long. Some of the things that I'm learning, learning about myself is amazing. So I have to say that there was some type of influence from that. But then again, that wasn't right because mom was miserable when she was with him. He was a hot mess. Another ladies man. You know, women all over Kansas City. The baby I had a baby back. The married man I had a baby back. Ladies, man, women all over, and kids all over Kansas City, Missouri. That's the part I should really try to get, get down to the nuts and bolts on so much. You know, other than trying to say it was this or that. There were a lot of influencing factors. I can't put why I made certain choices and bad decisions on just one thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a culmination of several things. Always. And then we're, we're, we're complicated. People are just complicated in nature. Sometimes I go, I never could understand why a woman could go out and sell her body all day long and then come home at night and give all the money to a man. But see, their value system is different than mine. Okay? Some women out here would probably say, I never sit, would never lay down with a married man. Your value system is not my value system. See? And we got to respect and let people do what they do. But today I look at that totally different. I wasn't just, didn't want, it wasn't about, now it's no longer about me. Keep, keep Now I've done a complete three, 360. That's a, some sister's man you out here laying down with. That's some sister's kid's father. It's not so much about how he's making you feel. It's about how would she feel if she knew you was laying around with her husband. And so now when I see a married man, I'm seeing a sister. Yeah. I'm seeing a sister. It was all about me once upon a time. It's no longer about me. It's about what am I going to leave when I'm gone? One of my clients, and I had this conversation. He said, when we die, it's going to be a tombstone. It's going to have the day you were born and the day you died. And in between those two years, it's going to be a dash. He said, the only thing that is important is what do you do with that dash? Half of my dash is gone. I got more time behind me than I have in front of me. I will be 69 years old in a few weeks. I want a good dash, the second half. Yeah, because this is a good person here today. And I'm thinking of others. I don't make I make very few decisions today where I'm not thinking about the butterfly effect. Mm -hmm. How is this gonna what I do today, how is it gonna directly impact somebody else? And if I can honestly say it's not gonna negatively impact them, I'm okay. But that's my measuring stick because like I said, it's not about me. Never has been, never will be. It's all about that dash. And that's the one thing I think I'm so uh connected to now that butterfly effect thing. I didn't really I didn't really understand how one action can just reverberate in a way. And I wasn't even acknowledging like the first person reaction for so long. Uh -huh. And most of those first person reactions related to 
relationships with women. I've always, you know, like the like the worst, most vulnerable parts always seem to show up in romantic interactions with people because it's like all of your vulnerable pieces and parts are exposed and sometimes we don't respond well when those things are getting touched or triggered or whatever. Um, and I made excuses for what that first reaction, for, for, for the butterfly effect, because I could only see what was about me in that moment. Mm -hmm. And now, like to your, because I feel like similar, yes. like more is behind me that's in front. Mm -hmm. And that other half, the first half was beautiful too, but the second half is going to be a different kind of beauty yeah. because of that awareness of mm -hmm. what, and being really intentional about um, how that shows up and connects to other people and, and all that. Absolutely. It's, a, it's one of the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. You know, it really truly is. And, and one of the things I've often said to myself and prayed about with you, Mikey, for a man to be a really good mate, I really believe it stems with the relationship that he has with his mother. One of my measuring sticks is to, if I'm gonna even consider being with a man is what was his relationship with his mother? Because if it's distorted, if it's toxic, I guarantee you he's gonna have a toxic and distorted relationship with me. And so I'm not saying that I'm the reason you are the way that you are, but what I am saying, because now we're all opened up, we, you know, we're, 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 we're uh, taking responsibility, uh, we know where a lot of our things are, but the fact that you and I have been at periods of time where we were estranged, where we were not even love speaking, it was always, you could have did this, or you should have did that, or just complete silence which is even worse, okay? Yeah. I think that there was a lack of the type of relationship you needed with the most important woman in your life that was set the stage for how you would be with subsequent women and ours wasn't very good, okay? So fast forward, we're new people. We've made our mistakes, we've acknowledged our mistakes, we've been vulnerable, we've reached out and asked for help from professionals. And we're on our way now. We're on our way, you know. You are probably in a, 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 a probably one of the most secure relationships now than you've ever been in your life. However, there had to be some changes happening. You see, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. And as our relationship has mended and repaired and we've repaired it and, and things of that nature, that's just making you even a better man for another woman. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm not taking responsibility for you being an asshole. <laughs> Thank you. But I am taking responsibility for knowing that the way you treat women stems with the most important woman in your life. Hey, you got a sparkle on your forehead, son. That's really pretty. You know, I love No, sparkle. I'm taking that off. I love bling. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep, I really do. So I'm just, I'm so excited for you. I, um, I was real nervous. I was real nervous about how things go. Our, our relationship has ran the spectrum. Yeah. And I've always tried to figure out how to accept the situation for like what it was and, and just try to move on. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know, I didn't know what had to happen. You know, it's like sometimes when you think about forgiveness, when you think about love and acceptance, it's an idea especially when you don't have a lot of practice of doing any of those things. Yeah. They're like just conceptual in nature, right? Yeah. So when I'm thinking about, okay, how do, you, how do you move on? What does that like look like? How do you forgive? How do you accept? And a path for me in trying to do that was through recognizing that you are me, like in a core. And I had and that started like the room was created for that when I started forgiving myself mm. for all of these things that I had done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some you know, some you don't, but it's um the guilt associated with not being able to say, okay, you did that. It's something you did. It's not who you are. It's right. not who you are. It's not who you are. Right. Kept me from seeing you for who you are. And it, and it wasn't until I started moving all of that kind of stuff and out of the way where this idea of, forgiveness and moving on and managing expectations and all of that kind of stuff, like literally started to go away. So I could see me in you. I could see what was actually there and has been there the whole time. And I am so thankful that you're my mom. Like in a deep, way everything I am is because of you and like the life you set up all the adversity there was nothing ever wrong with you. There was nothing ever wrong with you. And uh, I'm so thankful that I got to a point in my life where I could like see you and just love what's there with no expectation of it trying to be anything different than like what is there. And it's, um, it's so overwhelming, especially when I contrast it with 
the way our relationship has been. I never, never thought we would be here. I, kind of, I never, the things that we've said and the stuff that's been done, like I never, ever thought that we would be here. I never thought that. So in this last next dash, I'm going to spend the remainder of that just acknowledging the woman that you are, the mother that you are, what you've meant to me, what you mean to Casey. I'm just trying to do my part to help you become the best person that you can be. And I am um, moved at what you've had to endure in your life to get to this point and I'm thankful to be given the opportunity to learn from that and to use that to help me help other people because I really am. You know, I want people to know when I'm showing up, my mom is there and my dad is there. There are they're, they're people, there are stories, there's love, there's life that I'm bringing to help any situation. It's not mine, mm -hmm. you know? I'm just passing on all of this stuff that's been given. That's right. I'm sorry for being so uh, long-winded. No, no, the emotions, I'm cool with that. <laughs> it was the long-winded piece, I think. No, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. You know, I teach a class. I'm presently a certified peer support specialist at uh, for Swell Parkway Health Center in a treatment center called Amani House. And most of you guys know Amani is uh, one of the principles of uh, Kwanzaa, and it stands for faith. And one of the classes I teach is on acceptance. And acceptance is something that people needs to understand that you don't have to like something to accept it. And that acceptance is always for you. is to give you a level of peace in your life. You told me when I was complaining about Casey, Casey's his baby brother, uh, my baby son. And I was complaining about Casey and you stopped me and you said, Mom, that's Casey. And I went, yeah, it kind of is, ain't it? He said, Mom, Casey's going to be Casey. You going to be you and I'm going to be me. And that may have not seemed like a lot, but that was a profound statement. Because the moment you said that to me, whatever anger I had at Casey, it just drifted away. When, I, when you said that to me, I thought about how he was as a kid, and I go, yep, he's Casey. I thought about you as a kid, and things that I might have thought got on my nerves or something, but that's my Mikey. And now you're telling me the things about me that you quite didn't understand. You're going, but that's my mama. And I wouldn't change it for the world. And I love her to death. Same thing. It's called acceptance. Most of us are in conflict with people and, and, and circumstances because we just refuse to accept things for what, for what they are. Do you know how much better place this world would be if everybody just accepted everybody for who they are? I mean, I, I, to this day, I don't understand why... Uh, People know they have molesters in the family, but they've accepted it, <laughs> you know? 
They got crackheads and thieves in the family, but they've accepted it. And how do they show they accept it? When they come over for the family uh, picnics, where are the kids at? Yeah. Marlene, go get the kids. <laughs> you know? Uh, uh oh, uh, Wee Wee's here. A uh, uh, girl, uh, you got my purse. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's how. That's how you accept people. You just make concessions for they thieving, molesting asses. <laughs> yeah. And then you just let them go about their business. You accept situations and people for what they are, and then just go on about your business. But when you talk about family, we gotta. We've got to interact for the rest of our lives. And you said you never would have thought we had been here. We would be here. I knew we were going to get here. Because, see, I trust God today. Yes, I do. Mm. One of the biggest problems people know in recovery have is talking about their kids and how their kids is treating them and, 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 and they this and they that and they this and they that. And, and, and many of us that worked, I have to tell them, this, them kids don't owe you nothing. Well, I... You've been a junkie and a drunk. All you've taught them is how to how to be let down. And now you come in here and get two, two, three days of sobriety and your kids ain't returning your calls and they no good and they just like, them kids is tired of you. Y'all was tired of me. But you didn't let go, you know. So we gotta allow God to come in, intercede, and mend those relationships. I've been sober 24 years. You see how long it took us? I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't know when. And it was painful as fuck getting there. I'm going to be honest. But when I said let go and let God, one or two things going to happen. They're going to either get the fuck away from you and never come back again, or they're going to come on in. God's will will be done. And what happened? Look at us today. This table's too far away. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I knew it was going to happen. But we, we as parents want to try to fix a lifetime of mistakes overnight. Or look at me. I'm different now. I'm new. And y'all should be treating me different. No, they should be treating you exact. They have the right. One thing I did was I gave you and Casey the right to be angry with me. To be disappointed. Whatever you needed to be. I gave you the right. And how did I do that? By letting you feel how you felt and leaving you alone. That's how I did it, you know. But you all have the right. I mean, they know that substance abuse is a family disease. For you and your brother to come out and for me to walk around lolly-dolly-dolly and thinking that there was no residual damage, that would have been completely arrogant and irresponsible. Absolutely. You lived with a, a primary caregiver that was a, a substance abuser. Absolutely. Yes, there's going to be some, some damage. But you got professional help. I got professional help. I've just, record, I've just uh, and, and, and he might not would ever tell me, but I just recommended that your brother get some professional help. They have a support group called ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics. And to sit in a room with a bunch of young folks, millennials and, and maybe some even older, that have gone through exactly what you've gone through and can sit there with you and say, this happened to me too, but this is how I got better. I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful, but you all have taken it upon yourself to do, you know, to do different things. And uh, 
by all statistics, you, your brother and yourself are supposed to be either in jail or hell. That's according to statistics. Should have been in there in your early 20s. But look at you today. I am so proud of my boys. Sometimes I could just bust. You know, you all don't show outwardly anything uh, to the public. You wear your pants up. You speak in a tone where everybody can understand what you're saying. Um, you both, my well, case is kind of cheap, but we have exquisite <laughs> taste. <laughs> I love my baby. And that's why he's and a millionaire. That's exactly right. How are we going to buy them shoes tweaking? That's exactly why. He's a millionaire. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm waiting on next day. <laughs> I'll be going. Boy, why your shoes squeaking? <laughs> Honey. I'm so proud of him too, man. Uh, I um <laughs> I call him so our relationship has even gotten better. Me and Casey's, which is another beautiful piece of life. It's a different kind of exchange of energy. I feel like we listen more. I feel mm -hmm. like it's not as combative. Mm -hmm. Um and he and I had a conversation the other day, and I think we were talking. We were thinking, and I think he brought it up to me, and he was like, hey, man, do you think we're getting along better? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, dude, I was thinking the same thing like a week ago. And he was like, did you change? And I was like, no, nah, I thought you changed. And he was like, no, I thought you changed. And we were sitting there laughing because... <laughs> I thought he's been doing something different, and he thought I he thought I've been doing something different, but we have both recognized pretty much around the same time that uh, we were having much healthier interactions with one another that yes. wasn't contentious. Yes, and we've been able to to maintain that. I think for a very long since then, I would say maybe about six seven months or so, but. Uh, I'm so, because a lot of my guilt with him was having to accept the fact that I wasn't the best brother to him that I, that, that I felt he needed. And I resented him for all of the pressure that you had put on me to like, as he was growing up, but like the drinking and stuff, and like you being gone a lot and all of that, and I was, I was resenting him, yeah, and bring and, and and taking a lot of that out, and you know Casey is a, he's a special human being, just in terms of like his energy and his spirit. Even when he was a little boy, he was just special in every way. Yeah, he was, and. Older, recognizing just how special he was and not loving the special parts of him that I felt would have contributed to him being a better person. It's ridiculous in thought because he's an awesome person now, but just feeling like I didn't protect him in the ways that I should have as a, as a, as a big brother. Um, and letting that go. Because mm -hmm. if you were to ask him, he would be like, man, you a great brother. 
But mm-hmm. like you were saying, like every time I look at him, I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Guilt is one of the most wasteful emotions I think that we could have. It never changes anything. It always pulls everything down. Guilt is never positive. Guilt isn't. And I spent half of my life, maybe more than that, with guilt. And I think really that that's been the big, the chief uh, activator of a lot of our our stressors. You know, it's been just guilt, yeah. unwarranted guilt. Um, but that starts to subside when we take responsibility for it's not about us. You know, it really isn't. It's not about us. Never has been, never will be. I want to um, add this last piece because I think it's the part that I feel is so meaningful to your story. and meaningful to mine. I did not understand how fulfilling helping people is and how it's only been recently where I feel like that's my life work. Like that's why I'm put on the planet. That's why I'm designed and constructed the way that I am to be of service with people in a special way. Yes. And I feel like you're the same. When did you realize that that was a part of your purpose or was your purpose? The worst curse that I could ever experience turned out to be my best blessing. And that was substance abuse, alcoholism, please. It really was. In the um, programs of Alcoholics Anonymous, we have steps that we have to work. And the purpose of those steps is to create a psychic change in our head and in our behavior to whereas we don't want to continue destroying our bodies with alcohol and drugs. It's to give you the mindset that you deserve better. And so when you know better, you do better. Our 12th step says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry the message to the next suffering alcoholic and practice these principles in all our affairs. Once I started realizing that for me to maintain sobriety, I would have to give it away. And then when I would start to share and help people would always come and say, can I get your number, Miss Pat? Can I talk to you if I'm having a hard time? I said, maybe I'm onto something. And then as times as time went on and on, I start, I have a ton of clothes. I start donating stuff to uh, women's sober houses. I have kept a ongoing volunteer commitment for almost a quarter of a century. 
I've gone to various homeless shelters. I've taken cookies. I mean, when you go and help somebody else less fortunate than you, it's a feeling unlike anything I can ever describe because you have to feel it to know exactly what I'm talking about. And I could tell in your eyes that you feel it. You feel it. Um, everything we're given on this earth is not ours. You can own a $500,000, a million dollar house out here on Lock Lloyd, where Travis Kelsey lives, I heard, by the way. And uh, it's not his house. We could drive $200,000 Rolls Royces. Those aren't our Rolls Royces. Everything we've been given has been given to us to improve somebody else's life. Money is a, that's why I don't have none. Money for me is an opportunity and a resource to be of service to God and others. Do I tithe to a church? Not anymore. But there's so many ways you can give without even going in your pocket. Mm -hmm. That's a that people appreciate. Do you know, I didn't realize how my presence was a gift to some people. Just coming. You know, until I pull up in my car and they're running out to the park. The grown people. They come to this pad. They come to this pad. I'm going, oh, my God, they love me. <laughs> you know, I keep doing this. I'm sorry, son. Um, I just don't know. It's like once you start giving, it's sort of like, I don't know, when, when you take that first hit <laughs> and you go, <laughs> It's a different wow. kind of drug. It's a, yeah. it's a different kind of drug. I've warned my clients, you can get addicted to giving. I'll never have nothing. Because whatever I get, I'm going to pay my bills with it. And whatever's left over, I'm going to give it in some form or fashion or something. And I'm going to squeeze me a lobster tail dinner in there too. As <laughs> long as I can do that, I'm good. I'll probably go to my grave broke. Um... And I'm okay with that. I've seen places. I've met people. I've had things that some folks only dream about. If, if God came and got me tonight, I'd be okay. Other than my room is a mess. And that's my greatest fear, dying and my room's a mess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And every day I wake up, my thoughts are constantly on, Lord, what can I do to bless somebody today? And doesn't it feel like now that you know that everything else before had to happen the way that it did? Absolutely. Everything had to happen. When I was a beauty queen and riding around in limousines and dating, you know, politicians and all this and that, boy, I didn't have time for God and I didn't have time for others. But my ass got broke down. I was drinking down on 18th Street behind the dumpster. I didn't eat out of a dumpster. There's a lot of things y'all don't know about me. And I want to spare you of that, okay, a whole lot. Because some things are just not worth talking about. Mm. It ain't going to do nothing but stir up more pain. Yeah. My stories used to be told to get sympathy. My stories today that I tell is to protect others. And... Um, Something about when you're down to nothing, God is up to something. And what is it making you new, making you? We have so much to give, and we just don't even realize it until some major emotional, mental, 
or some type of disaster happens that makes you have to get inside of yourself and, and, deep, and, 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 and think deep. It's not about what you had when you was on this earth. It's about what kind of legacy are you leaving. I was a housing counselor from the time I got sober in 1999. I know for a fact I put over 200 families in houses that never thought they would be homeowners. I've helped hundreds of people get their credit cleaned up and their credit scores up. You know, and then they say, how much I owe you, Miss Pat? You don't owe me nothing because you can't now give God. If I took money from you, then I, I got to wait on my blessing from him. And my God is so wonderful. He'll never give me a full lump sum or nothing because, you know, I go, I go buck wild. He just gives me enough to say, I'm listening to you, baby. I got you. I got you. I go, well, God, why you didn't give me more than that? You knew that was only going to take care of this. He said, I got you. And some days I just get up and get in my little car and just go, wonder what God got for me today. Because I know I got something for somebody else. And that's the way I live my life. And I got peace. I've got a relationship with my oldest son that I never thought I, that I knew I was going to have. I just didn't know if I was going to live to see it. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes relationships don't get mended till they're looking down Today in your gone. coffin. <laughs> I'm like, oh, mama. But, uh, yeah, this is wonderful. Now, our next phase should be us getting together, taking a trip. You, Casey, me, Brianna, Zendo, and us get, I should have a boyfriend by then. Okay. We'll talk about that off camera. Yes, ma'am. And uh, we need to take us a trip, go to a beach or, or something. You know, you guys always go in places without me. Well, it's time to tag, for me to tag along. I like it. I'm with it. Yeah, me too. Make it perish. You know, I keep trying to get, <laughs> I keep trying Casey, to get Casey want to go. Well, he's been, right? Casey's been everywhere. Yeah. And then you and Zendo, y'all done covered the Caribbean, ain't you? You knocked it out. Yeah. Um, I'm still trying to get out of Kansas City, Kansas. <laughs> We're going to get you there. That's okay. My birthday is next month. I know that's a little soon, but. <laughs> oh, honey, I feel so privileged that you asked me to do this. I really do. And I've had such fun. Is there um, something you wish for me? Oh, my God, yes. I wish more peace, more happiness, and some damn grandbabies. There you go. Everybody, thank you guys for coming. No, I'm just <laughs> so we, um, we talked about that, and that is definitely uh, God's business. There you go. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody ever wanted to know what healing looks, sounds, and feels like, all they got to do is watch this. Yeah, look at us. And look at us. Mm -hmm. And we're using it to help heal and love other people. And that's really the, the, the key to it, I think. And I'm so... Even when we weren't talking, I've always admired you. I've always seen you show up in the way that you have. And I was very clear on how our story was being used to help others 
in yes. a very profound way. I just didn't know that I would be doing the same and that I was doing the same in my way. I It was just stuff in the way. Mm-hmm. Your, um, to me, your legacy is love. Yes. It's healing. And that's more valuable than anything you could acquire because it's all stuff that you give away, like you were saying. And I think Casey and I will continue to give it. And the people we give it to Pass it on. will be giving it. And that's how we live forever, through our love. Pay it forward. Mm-hmm. I love you. Love you more. I'm older. I'm bigger. I used to say I'm bigger. I used bigger. to say, used to say I'm now, bigger. <laughs> now I'm older. Now I'm older. Yep. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, love. Love you.